Good morning. Let me add my welcome to you as well. My name is Preston. I'm the associate pastor here at St. Peter's Fireside. And uh, our friend Alistair is away on vacation for a couple weeks uh, off on the island. So um, you'll be seeing a lot of me the next three weeks. Uh, so I'm happy to, happy to be here with you. And if you've been with us for a while, you know that we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 5 to 7, a classic text which... Um, which we've been walking through slowly and looking at how Jesus paints this amazing vision of the kingdom of heaven. Um, and he shows us what the good life looks like according to God. That's what it's all about. It answers the question to human flourishing. Now, what you just heard read was not the Sermon on the Mount, which I'm sure you may have guessed. Uh, it's, we're, we're taking a break from that and we're going to the prophet Habakkuk for, for three weeks, and people keep, I keep saying we're going to preach Habakkuk, and people keep looking at me very strangely and wondering why we would do that in the summer. They, I, they've been suggested we should do a mini-series on summer movies or something else like that, um, and I, I wrestled with that for a little while. What should we do as we break from the Sermon on the Mount for a bit? And uh, this is what came up, and, and here's why. Here's why we're, we're looking at at Habakkuk, because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us this prayer that we pray every single week together. Uh, some of you pray it every single day, the Lord's Prayer. And in that prayer, we pray, God, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, and this question comes up for me, certainly, and I'm sure for many of you, as we pray this prayer all the time as Christians, because we pray it. We pray your kingdom come, God, may your will be done. And then we wait, and we see evidence of God's kingdom, but we also see a lot of other things in the world that don't look much like God's kingdom. And sometimes, I know, at least for me, it looks like the light of the kingdom of God and this vision of the, of the kingdom life that Jesus gives us, sometimes it seems nearly extinguished by all the faithlessness and the violence and the arrogance of the self-centered world in which we live. It makes us ask, where is this kingdom? Where is it? And even despite all the, all the positive things about our society and the, and the modern advancements with which we live, it seems like most of us are characterized more by rhythms of worry and busy than anything else. I mean, we wake up in the morning and do as much as we can until we fall asleep at night. At breakneck speed sometimes, at least I do, and we're worried the whole time if we're doing enough or not. And then when we let our minds rest and pause for a moment, we find ourselves worried if any of it matters at all. This is the kingdom marching forward all around us. This is the kingdoms we live around. Is this the kingdom of God? Is this the abundant life that Jesus offers us? No, it's not. It's not at all. So the question is, well, how do we live in this in-between space? Well, we as citizens of God's kingdom pray, thy kingdom come. Yet in the world in which we live, in our day-to-day -day lives, we experience a world running in the opposite direction. How do we manage this dissonance? How do we live as Christians? when our beliefs about God, about who he is, don't seem to align with our experience of life in the day-to-day -day world of God and what seems to be God's ways. 
When the kingdom feels distant and we're wondering if it's even real, how do we live? Well, we're not the first people to ask this question. That's the sort of questions we'll be asking in this series. And in fact, many people at many times and in many places at many points in history have faced this dilemma. I'd even wager to say there's always been someone asking this question. Scripture itself is full of these people, and one of them's name is Habakkuk. Habakkuk, that's how you say it. Uh, Sarah did a great job. I googled it also myself to find out. It's not readily obvious, I assure you. (laughs) Habakkuk, he was a prophet. He was a prophet who lived in Jerusalem in the last days of the 7th century BC. He grew up during the reign of King Josiah, a faithful king who did everything he could to lead the people in right relationship with God. He was good. Habakkuk was a child during Josiah's rule. He benefited from the faithfulness of Josiah's leadership. He was a young man formed in the ways of the Lord because of Josiah's good leadership. But in the year 609 BC, Josiah was killed in a battle with Egypt. And soon after, his son took the throne. His name was Jehoiakim. Another fun name, Jehoiakim. He took the throne of Israel, and the period of Jerusalem's robust faith was over. It ended. Jehoiakim wasn't much like his father. He was greedy. He demanded a plush lifestyle. He oppressed his own people. He enslaved his own people to build himself a palace. He became angry when prophets like Jeremiah and Habakkuk came to him and spoke God's word to him, which went against what he wanted to do. He burned their scrolls. Jehoiakim was arrogant and evil. Also in Habakkuk's time, the world power of Babylon was gaining influence over the ancient world. Babylon was winning battles and gaining influence and overtaking nations. So Habakkuk lived under a corrupt king who rejected God and a nation that was on the brink of being conquered by Babylon. It was a time of unrest and fear, to say the least. When the regular Jew in Jerusalem couldn't trust the priests at the temple to lead them in worship, they didn't know what they'd get there and who lived in the constant fear of foreign armies overrunning their city. It's hard for us to picture what that would have been like, but I think anxiety is is at least that we can say. An ambient anxiety filled Jerusalem in those days, too. Now, in the midst of all this, Habakkuk, the prophet, he does something that most people aren't thinking about doing. He has a conversation with God. He speaks to God, and he listens to the God who he believes is still good and still faithful amidst all this chaos. And this short book we have in in the middle of of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, this short book is simply his conversation with God written down. It's three chapters. It's pretty short. Three chapters, and we'll look at it over three weeks. And we'll ask how, we'll ask Habakkuk, how did you live in this dark time? And how might this help us as we pray, thy kingdom come, Lord Jesus, and we wait. So today we'll look at chapter one. In this chapter, we listen on as Habakkuk dialogues with God. It's a back and forth. The prophet offers a complaint. God responds. Habakkuk responds back. And here's our main idea for today. While awaiting the kingdom, we pray in righteous protest. 
while awaiting the kingdom, we must pray in righteous protest. So we're going to open back our Bibles up. If you, uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can take one of the gray ones home that are out there in the foyer. Everything will also be on the screen here. And first, we're just going to look at verses 1 to 4. This is Habakkuk's first, first prayer. We'll start in verse 2, actually. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk laments what has happened to faith in the community of God's people here. It's no longer a faithful community, but a corrupt and a self-serving community. The tone of worship has fallen from a loving adoration to an empty ritual. People are happy to come to worship, offer a sacrifice, and head home without ever opening their hearts to hear from God. And it doesn't stop at the temple either. Habakkuk paints a grim picture of society in Jerusalem. Jehoiakim's government... They've put the, he's put people in forced labor to build a palace. There's no justice. The courts are corrupt. Personal holiness is a relic of the past. As, as verse 4 says, is telling, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous and justice goes forth perverted. He's saying the law or Torah, the gift of God to, to, their, to his people, is paralyzed and justice can't go forth. He means that the words that God has given, that God has breathed life upon his people uh, so that they can live in relationship with him, they're paralyzed because people are ignoring it. They're rendered ineffective because people are closing their ears. The Torah, which King Josiah had brought back and led Israel to follow, their current king does the opposite. He ignores it, and he does what is right in his own eyes. And because of this, justice not only is stopped, but it goes forth perverted and twisted by the wicked. The words of life that God had given his people are being co-opted by wicked leaders and and, and they're using them to do harm to people. Habakkuk's cry is the same cry of sorrow when we see the church caught again and again in scandals and false teachers manipulate the words of God in order to make money off of trusting crowds. Justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk turns toward God in this, and he laments. What does this mean? Well, let's look at his opening prayer one more time in verses 2 to 3. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why? Do you idly look at wrong? Lament is a righteous expression of grief and protest to God. It's a righteous expression of grief and protest to God. Habakkuk asked two questions in this passage that many of us as Christians learn along our lives not to ask of God. How long and why? Not only that, Habakkuk implicates God in the situation. How long do I cry and you will not hear? 
you will not save. He accuses God. He accuses God of sitting idle when action is needed and and forcing Habakkuk to see things and to experience things that grieve him. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't flatten the horror of things. He doesn't suppress his tears and force an empty, well, everything will be okay. Or everything happens for a reason. Or things could be worse. He doesn't do that. He looks at God, his first love, and he says, you, you are a good God. I know you. You're a good God, and you abound in steadfast love, and I don't see it right now. What's going on? And how long is it going to last? He makes a righteous protest through lament. You see, Habakkuk's beliefs about who God is, about his character, don't align with his experience of God's ways. And when this happens for us too, which it happens for all of us, lament is the first action to take. It's the first step for us. One clarification first. Sometimes our beliefs about God are wrong. And so our experience of him doesn't align with our beliefs because we have a false vision of God. That happens too. We can have an incorrect expectation that God isn't meeting, that God isn't meeting because what we expect isn't actually who God is. This, this happens all the time in the church too. Here's an example. The prophet Jeremiah, same contemporary as Habakkuk, wrote a letter to the Jewish exiles in Babylon after Babylon had defeated, defeated Jerusalem and carried off exiles and took them away into captivity, like Daniel and his friends, Jeremiah writes a letter to them. And in this letter, he shares a word of hope with the exiles, reminding them that, that God hasn't forsaken them in their exile, and he does have a plan to restore them. And this plan ultimately found fulfillment in the gift of Jesus Christ, who is the grounds for our hope and our future. You probably know the verse that, he said, that, that I'm talking about. Behold, I have good plans for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, for a hope and a future. However, sometimes these famous words that Jeremiah gives to the exiles in Babylon, they can be used to tell us God has a plan for our lives that matches our own hopes and dreams and visions. That is the same thing of our idea of personal fulfillment, not necessarily the kingdom of God, our own vision of the human good life. But this is, this is the confusion. This, this isn't the case. It's not what Jeremiah is talking about. So sometimes disappointment in God comes from a false view about who he is and about what he's promised, which is why we have to continually return to Scripture and to return to God's Word to, to have our vision of who God is righted and corrected and clarified. So that's not what, that's not what lament is, um, because sometimes we're spot on about who God is and about our vision of him. And, and things still aren't matching up. It's like when you believe that God is relational and personal, and he is, that you find yourself lonely in a lonely city. When you believe God is a healer, and he is, yet you find yourself still sick or stuck in pain. Like when you believe God is a God of restoration and transformation and redemption, and he is, yet you're still stuck in the same ruts of sin. How long, O oh Lord? 
And these are the whys and the how longs that can really pile up on us, can't they? They can really pile up personally, locally, and even globally. There's much that goes on against the grain of the kingdom of God around us, and it is these questions that can create serious doubt and anger towards God. And when left in the dark, they're questions that lead people to abandon their faith. I'm sure you've known someone who's abandoned their faith because of questions like this. I know I have. So Habakkuk's habit of lament helps us know what to do with these ugly questions that come up while we're waiting for the kingdom. He doesn't let them stay in the dark to gnaw away at his soul. He doesn't bring them out as complaints to his friends. He doesn't post them on social media. He doesn't distract himself from them or numb them with a drug. Habakkuk brings the questions into the searing light and puts them into conversation with God. This can be terrifying, I know, because it's the decision to open our hurts and our longings and our fears before God, our innermost being, and asking God to speak into them. How can we do this? There's only one way. It's by knowing the name and trusting the character of this God. This is the God whose name is Jesus. The God who, in John chapter 4, set across a well from a woman in Samaria, a woman who had had four husbands and then lived with a, a man currently who wasn't her husband. And this Jesus, this God of ours, revealed all of her secrets to her in the searing light of day. Yet what was her response when Jesus exposed her heart? Fear? Self-condemnation? No, it was freedom and joy. She runs off into the town to tell everyone about Jesus, who has offered her living water, and says, come, see a man who's told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Christ? We can pray and lament openly before God because we know this God as Jesus, because we can trust him to be a good God who more than anything desires us to bring our whole selves to him in faith. So we can come, raw and unfiltered. But it's not a vent session. It's not mere complaint or whining to God or self-pity. It's different. It has a different tone. The starting point is that God is good after all, that he does listen and respond. And it's this faith-filled prayer of righteous grief and protest that is lament. Because God is good, that means Things are wrong. Things are not right in the world. And we must make these righteous, lamenting prayers while we await the kingdom, or we will become callous and distant from God. We must ask him. We have to bring it to him. How will you act in response to this distress? How will you show your goodness? And in this asking, we lay our burdens at his feet and we listen. This is what Habakkuk did. And God did indeed respond. He responds, but in a very unexpected way. He responds to Habakkuk in an even theologically confusing way. It's a strange response. He says, here's what I'm going to do. I'll tell you my plan. I'm raising up a foreign pagan superpower, Babylon, who will come and conquer Judah as punishment for the nation's wickedness. 
So let's read that part together again. It's verses 5 to 11. This is God responding now. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. It's another name for Babylon. That bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. At this time, they're literally marching through the earth, taking over nations. Uh, sorry, where was I? There we are. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle to, to, and are swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. It's a violent picture, isn't it? It's a brutal picture. The Babylonians will come and defeat God's people. An image is painted of, of a bloodthirsty, strong, ruthless armies coming over the mountains and coming to steal and plunder and kill. So what do we make of this? What do we make of God using a violent superpower as an instrument of judgment? I mean, before we get to Habakkuk's response, let's just pause and acknowledge that this isn't how we normally think of God's action, is it? It's pushing God's sovereignty his power and control into uncomfortable territory. Well, what we see here is that God is indeed a God over history, over all history, and history is very messy. And there's lots of things that happen that are horrific. But God is a God who does direct it with an arc, who is guiding it with an arc towards a direction. In this story, and for us, there's two implications that are important. One, God is telling Habakkuk that Babylon will conquer them. That's going to happen, and it did. Babylon conquered Judah in 597 and led the people away into exile. At this time and at this place, this is how God allowed the story of his people to unfold, as the consequence for their rebellion and idolatry. Verse 11, oh, sorry, Two is God over history. God's rule is sovereign over every nation in power. So in the Old Testament, we see God as a special covenantal relationship with Israel in order to show the rest of the world what he's like. But his reign extends over all peoples. This means every nation, Babylon included, are subservient to God's kingdom and will be judged by God's universal rule. Verse 7 tells us the key to Babylon's wickedness and why they will be judged. It tells us what they're like. It says they're dreaded and fearsome, and their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Babylon was its own god, deciding justice, right and wrong, good and bad, on its own. Their justice goes forth from themselves. And whenever any nation or leader or group or person, whenever I or you decide we can determine right and wrong and, and justice and good and bad on our own, we're following the same path as Babylon did. Verse 11 seals God's judgment on them. It 
it says, guilty men whose own might is their God. They worship their own strength, power, and might, cultural dominance and influence. This is their God, and they will face judgment for it. And this way, God responds to Habakkuk's lament. We'll deal with Babylon a bit more next week, so not to worry, it's not the last to be said. But this is how God responds to Habakkuk in the moment. He doesn't answer all of his how long questions and why questions, but he redirects them. Now, why does God do this? Why doesn't he just give a straight answer? It would be nice sometimes if God just gave us a straight answer, but that's not what he does. It's hardly what he does. Why not? This is, this is one reason why, not the only, but one important one. It's because God isn't so much interested in answering our questions, questions that we often can't even wrap our minds around in the first place, as he is deepening in relationship with us, informing us into his image, informing us and growing us. So, so we need to ask the questions, yes, but God's main concern is the conversation and drawing us to himself. Will Habakkuk continue in trusting God when things go beyond human reasoning, when he doesn't understand? Will he, when the world seems upside down, will he trust God and push towards his presence with these questions and these fears and laments? Or not? What will he do? Will he keep them in the dark and check out and go the other way? Habakkuk pushes towards God again. He's not satisfied with this answer. He's further confused and he lets God know. In verses 12 to 17, Habakkuk, Habakkuk protests again. I knew I was going to slip that up eventually. He protests again. So the conversation goes on. He says, I'm going to summarize it for you this time. God, this is a horrible plan. The, it is. What are you thinking? The Babylonians will come and conquer. Well, they're even worse than the evil in our own nation. This doesn't make sense. And they're going to rule over us. Habakkuk doesn't think God's action fits the situation. Again, his beliefs about God don't seem to fit his experience with God. Now, this second prayer is another righteous protest. His lament moves even further. It moves into righteous indignation. He's upset. Yet in his protest, what is the relational direction he takes? That's what we have to notice. He moves again closer to God, not away. He moves closer to God, not away, because he feels safe to bring it to him. He feels safe in that place. And in his protest, that's the direction he goes. Look at verses 12 to 13, and listen for how he speaks to God. He says, Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment O you, O rock, have established them for reproof. Yet you are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? So he's still protesting, but his protests are full of affirmations too. Of God's goodness, the Lord, the Holy One, my rock. And Habakkuk shows us that when we pray for the kingdom and it doesn't seem to be coming, the path we are to take is not silence or checking out or abandoning God or stopping to come to community group or to go to church or whatever. 
but to push more deeply into knowing him. As counterintuitive as that seems, that's the direction we're called to go, to listen more carefully. The way to do this when we're angry or upset or discontent is prayer. That is righteous protest that keeps the conversation going and remains open to God talking back. We have to keep the conversation going. Habakkuk concludes his second protest with assertiveness. Chapter 2, verse 1. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. He's committed. He's all in and he's not going anywhere. He will be listening and waiting for God to keep the conversation going too. You see his faith. I will stand and take my watch. Now this posture is a challenge. The method of our world, those kingdoms we live in that's going one way, is when we have discontentment, it's the quick fix or replace, isn't it? Whether it's our phones or our diets or our marriage or our faith, if it isn't working, chuck it out and find something new. But there's no replacement for the kingdom of God. There's no going to find another one somewhere else. And we know the quick fix methods of discontent utterly fail, don't they? So while we pray, thy kingdom come and wait, we must make a righteous protest with our discontent to God and bring it to him wholeheartedly. We must lament and stand and watch like a watchman on a tower in order to see what God will do in our time and place. Now, as Christians, we have the unique opportunity to have this intimate conversation with God. Do we know that? Do we realize that? We have the freedom to enter in and speak personally, conversationally to the God who it, it is indeed safe to fall apart with, who can handle that. We have a God who showed us this himself when he faced his greatest moment of anguish and wondering about the kingdom, when he prayed to his father, weeping tears of blood, if there's any other way, God, Father, will you take this cup from me? Our prayer while we wait for the kingdom, it's more than catharsis. It's more than mere meditation. It's more than escape. It's more than a ritual that makes us feel better. Our prayer while we wait the kingdom is communion. It's knowing and being known by God. It's being understood by him, that deepest relational gift he can give us. Habakkuk prayed in righteous protest when conquering forces loomed on the horizon of Babylon. He's not the only one, though. Daniel prayed this way in Babylon while he waited for deliverance. I bet Mary prayed this way. How can this be, God, when she had to have her baby in a cave? Any woman who's pregnant would understand that. St. Francis of Assisi prayed this way during a time of inquisition when the church was burning people left and right at the stake for heresy. He prayed, how long, God, how can this be? Make me an instrument of your peace. And saints all throughout time have prayed this way and continued to do so, all the way up to today. And you know what? God is always looking for women and men to pray this way, to open themselves up in deep conversation, 
He's looking for us to pray this way today and throughout our relationship with him and to cry out in desperation. How long, O Lord, and to bring that to him, to make the righteous protest and to put ourselves in the vulnerable position, vulnerable position of allowing God, opening ourselves to God to speak back and to walk in faith with him, whatever that response looks like. This is prayer that takes all of us. I get it. It's wholehearted prayer, and it's a journey sometimes to get there. It's hard for me. It takes pushing through our quick, self-interested prayers at times. It takes meditating on who God is and bringing, bringing ourselves to God in faith and boldness. And, and as I said, it's something, it's something I'm growing with myself, and I'm working on, and it takes work. And so I want to close today by praying, by praying together and trying this together a bit. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me first. And if you're comfortable with it, to open your hands simply. And we're, we're going to take a moment and pray together. Pray, try to pray this sort of prayer together with our hearts. So let's pray. God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to you because you are God. You are creator. You are Lord over history. You are a good God who has revealed your justice and your love through the scriptures. You've revealed your plan for redemption and salvation through Jesus Christ. You have set eternity in our hearts. You have showed us your kingdom you have offered eternal communion with you. You have caught your people up in your grand story of salvation. God, and we long to see your kingdom come here and now. We long for it in our lives, in our city, in our world. And as you've taught, Lord Jesus, in your sermon, we pray, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Will you all pray that with me again? May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray it one more time. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's just take a moment to sit quietly and ask, where do things feel out of step in your heart, in your world? Where do you need to make this open to God righteously, personally, locally, globally? Where does the burden of the kingdom lacking weigh on your soul? Ask God about that.